We are in Psalm 16 this morning. So if you take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 16, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the rack in front of you that looks like this. And you can find page, you can find Psalm 16 on page 453. Page 453. I also want to make, a, make mention, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one. So you can take this home with you when you leave. If you don't believe me, there's actually a little note in the front that says you're allowed to take it home. So um, please, we want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Psalm 16, page 453. Um, we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you would join us standing. When I conclude the reading of God's word, I'm going to say, this is God's word, and we can say, thanks be to God. Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their name, names on my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen in pleasant, for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, take your word by your spirit, use it powerfully in our lives, unleash the sword of the spirit upon us. We need your word this morning, so help us, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. What would it take this morning for you to believe in the resurrection? To believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Would it take hundreds of eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ? Many who died based on the claim that they had seen the resurrected Christ? Would it take an empty tomb? where all the Jewish or Roman authorities had to do was to say, okay, here's the body, guys. This is the body. And the entire movement would have been wiped out. Would it take the testimony of a transformed life, someone 
gripped by sin and under the yoke, the weight of their own rebellion against God, who then experienced through the risen Christ transformation, a new heart, new life, born again. What would it take for you to believe in the resurrection? Perhaps it would take a 3,000-year-old song. A song written a thousand years, a millennia, millennium, before Jesus came to this earth. And I think, I think this song that we're looking at, Psalm 16, this 3,000-year-old song, might convince you as it has strengthened my faith in the power of the resurrection. Because of the way it lays out very specific and yet mysterious clues that only make sense in light of their answer. Specific yet mysterious clues that only make sense when the answer arrives. It's it's a little bit like a riddle that way. What gets wetter, the more it dries. Specific clues, but mysterious until you hear a towel. And you go, aha, it all makes sense. The person who made it doesn't want it. The person who bought it doesn't need it. The person who needs it doesn't know it. Very specific clues, but a mystery around it. I can tell they're pointing to something, but what is it they're pointing to? A coffin. A coffin. The person who made it doesn't want it. The person who bought it doesn't need it. The person who need it doesn't know it. A coffin, right? That's, that's a little bit how this song works. And so let's look at Psalm 16 this morning, on this Easter morning. At, at just kind of first blush, this is a song written by David about how those who take refuge in the Lord, who, who make the Lord their hope, have great joy. So you see in the first five verses this clear statement that this, this person, David, and anyone who's joining in this song, is aligned with the Lord, aligned with Yahweh. So in verse 1, he's able to pray, preserve me, O God, because he says, you are my refuge. God is his refuge. In verse 2, he just explicitly says, I have no good apart from you. In verses 3 and 4, he even describes how his orientation towards others is based on his orientation towards the Lord. If they are aligned with the Lord and seeking him, he has great delight in them. But if they are pursuing other gods and the waste that brings, he's not joining in in their sacrifices and their deeds and their acts. And then verse 5, he's basically saying, I've put all my eggs in this basket. All my Easter eggs in this basket. He is my portion, my cup. You hold my lot. 
You see, which is the, these first five verses just pulsating with this. God is my everything. That is where I am placing all my hope, all my trust, all my security. That's where I'm aligned. And what is the result of that? In verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 8, because I've set Yahweh before me, he's at my right hand. I'll not be shaken. So I have this beautiful inheritance. I'll not be shaken. Verse 9, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. And your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see how the psalm works? I'm, I'm putting my confidence in God. That's where I am finding security. That's where I'm finding hope. That's what I'm basing everything on. And this is where all my hope is. As a result, I have an inheritance. I stand secure. I have life. I have joy. I have pleasure forevermore. Something that can't be shaken. It's a great song. Great song for us to sing. You think of all the places that we tend to look in this world for pleasure, for joy, for security. So often it's that inward gaze. I'm going to find it somewhere in discovering what my heart is, following my heart, finding out who I am and actualizing that. And this psalm's like, no. It's not where you're going to find your joy and your stability and your life and your pleasure. It's by looking to God, putting your confidence in Him. It's a good psalm. But there is a bit more going on in this psalm than initially meets the eye. And the first clue that we get that this psalm is a a little bit different, there's something going on here, is when we notice where this psalm is placed amidst the other psalms. So look at Psalm 11. It begins, In Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Psalm 12, verses 1 and 2. Save, O Yahweh, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with, a flat, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Psalm 13. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. How about on the other side, Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Yahweh. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. I'm going to skip to verse 13. Arise, O Yahweh. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. For Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I could go on in either direction. But do you notice what these psalms all around it are about? I'm under attack. The world is corrupt. It's messed up. It's unjust. And I'm overwhelmed by that. In fact, David, who experienced a lot of the injustice and brokenness and wickedness of this world, wrote a lot of songs about that. And in the book of Psalms, most of those songs are grouped right here in the book of Psalms. And you'll notice I didn't read chapter or Psalm 15 because that song is, is really linked with 16. It sets it up. To further accentuate Psalm 16. But Psalm 16 stands different from what's around it. It, it, It's like it doesn't belong. Be a little bit like singing Silent Night here on Easter Sunday. Or to switch up the analogy, like being at a Metallica concert. And then suddenly they play a Taylor Swift song. Something doesn't belong. It's not quite right. This song stands out in relation to the other songs that it's grouped with. So either there was an accident, the editor's putting together him, the whoops, that one slipped in there, didn't know how that happened, or there's a reason for it. Now we're going to explore that a little bit more later. But there's a second clue in Psalm 16 that there's more going on here. A second specific clue that is a bit mysterious. And it's verse 10 of our song. Did you notice verse 10? 
It's weird. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol was the place of the dead. Or let your holy ones see corruption. I mean, this is a little Halloween-y. Like, my dead body laying there in Sheol, you're not going to abandon that. This, this dead body's not going to decay. It's not going to see corruption. I mean, maybe we who are Christians who know our New Testaments and have heard this verse used in the New Testament, we, we, we just kind of read them like, oh, that's normal. But that's not normal. It's like Edgar Allan Poe got inserted right here in the middle of this song. Maybe some of you kids are going to be like, okay, I know the part in the Bible where it talks about zombies. What, what is up with that? Well, fortunately, looking at the psalm itself, it answers the question for us of, of why this verse 10 is sitting here. You might have noticed the word therefore and for around it. So verse 10 begins with four. So that means it's pointing back to verse nine, right? My whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure for. Whatever's going on with this not being abandoned in Sheol and our body not decaying is the reason that his soul rejoices. My soul rejoices, my flesh is secure, for. You're not going to abandon my soul. The Holy One won't see corruption. But verse 9 doesn't just point forward to verse 10. It also points back to verses 7 and 8. So you see the therefore at the beginning of verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad. Pointing back to verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also. My heart instructs me. I've set Yahweh always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This is the reason. This is the reason that my soul is so glad. Because Yahweh is giving me counsel. In the night, I'm just, my, my, my heart just keeps bringing it up, bringing it up. I, I'm thinking about it all the time. He's before me. Therefore, my heart's glad. Well, which is it? Why is your heart glad and your whole book being rejoicing? Is it because verse 10? Or is it because verses 7 and 8? A little bit of mystery surrounding that verse 10. But actually, if we know David's story, some of the mystery starts to get solved. He says, I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. You think of all the different counsel that David received from Yahweh. Certainly the whole writings of Moses would have been helpful 
It's a godly king. He would have set that before him. Prophet Nathan rebuking him. But perhaps the most striking counsel, the most memorable counsel David ever received from the Lord, we hear about in 2 Samuel 7. So turn there with me, 2 Samuel 7. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack there in front of you, it's on page 259. Page 259. So the story is that David decides that he's going to build a temple for the Lord. And in response, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan with a word about this temple. And he says, no, 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 you're not going to be the one to build the temple. But look with me, 2 Samuel 7, picking up in the middle of verse 11. Listen to what Yahweh says. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in case he misses the point, it's repeated down in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Can you imagine hearing words like that from Yahweh? Getting that kind of counsel from Yahweh. It it kind of stretches belief. Okay, I'm going to die, but one of my offspring who'll come from my own body, you're going to use to set up your temple and also to establish a forever kingdom so that he will reign forever. Maybe it's just hyperbole. I mean, there are kings that reign a long time. Queen Elizabeth right now, nearly 70 years, right? That's a long time. No, he says forever, 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 over and over again. Establishing a kingdom forever. How will that be? How will one of my offspring be used by Yahweh to establish his kingdom forever? No wonder he stayed up at night thinking about this. And so when he goes to write Psalm 16, he's not merely writing about how all of us 
when we put our confidence in God, can know joy and security and life and pleasure. He has something far bigger in mind because he's been wrestling with, grappling with the counsel of Yahweh that's been given to him. So when verse 9 points backwards and forwards to 7 and 8 and verse 10, it's not doing two different things. It's one and the same. Because the counsel that Yahweh's given is that his offspring will reign forever. And so he says, you're not going to abandon his soul to Sheol. And then all this has been about me, me, me. He says, your holy one will not see corruption. See, he was thinking about this promised offspring. Yes, it's true for all of us at a certain level. It's true for me, King David, at a certain level. But in a unique way, this is a psalm about the kingdom that's coming. The forever king that God's going to set up, that he promised me through the prophet Nathan, that I think about all the time. And when I think about that and how God's going to do that, that's what gives my soul joy and delight amidst all this Psalm 11, Psalm 12, Psalm 13, Psalm 14, Psalm 17, Psalm 18, and on. David believed it. Amidst all the agony and injustice that he saw and experienced, confronted with his own sin, his own dark heart, He believed the promise of God that one would come who would reign forever and rescue this world out of the darkness. If I'm going to put my hope in God, my ultimate hope is that you are going to fulfill this promise that you gave me through Nathan and not allow your Holy One to see corruption. David believed it. Can we believe it? Can we believe that in this world that's scarred and marred by our collective rebellion against God and my own heart that's scarred and marred by my own rebellion against God, that there is hope? That God can do something to lift us up and establish a new kingdom and rescue us? God wanted us to be able to believe it. And so he started over a thousand years before Jesus came, putting very specific but mysterious clues in place that only made sense when Jesus came. And once he came, you go, aha, this is exactly exactly what God was talking about. And when that clicks, we can say, I know it's true. 
I know it's true. There's no, there's no way for something like this to be possible unless there is a God who is saying beforehand what he was going to do in a way that wasn't just one offhand prediction, but a whole fabric of, of clues that comes together in Christ. So look forward with me at Luke chapter 24. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack, it's 885, Luke 24. Luke 24, 885. So here's the scene. We've heard already in Luke that the tomb is empty. Some of the disciples, some of the women who follow Jesus have found it empty. And so there's this rumor circulating that Jesus is actually risen from the dead. And there are a few of his followers who've heard this rumor and they're on a journey along to a place called Emmaus. And they're talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I love that. <laughs> To Jesus, they said that. He said to them, what things? They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not, here's, here's the towel, here's the coffin, here's the answer to the riddle. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. They still don't recognize it's him, but he's showing them all the different clues woven together in the Old Testament that show that the Christ had to suffer and rise and enter into glory. So they draw, draw near to the village to which they're going. He acted as if he was going further. They urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, 
and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Then he said to each then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when we saw the resurrected Jesus? That's what you'd expect them to say. I mean, they just saw the resurrected Jesus. They just became eyewitnesses of Jesus. Here I am. I'm alive. Everything you heard was true. And you'd think, did our hearts not, the very first thing out of their mouth, did our hearts not burn when we saw our resurrected Lord? But that's not what they say. They say, did our hearts not burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. What what would it take to make you believe? To see the resurrected Jesus? These guys saw it, and what they're saying is gave them the greatest confidence was hearing how all the scriptures came together in him. Now look a little bit ahead in verse 36. Jesus appears again to all the disciples now. And he says, peace to you. Verse 38, he said to them, why are you troubled and why why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself, touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And we'd said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved, So they're seeing him, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. He said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Not just that you've seen the resurrected Lord, but that he is the one who fulfills all of the Old Testament promises. You are witnesses of these things. Luke was the one who wrote this gospel. He has Peter here hearing these words. Luke, Luke's second part of his message about Jesus, there's the gospel of Luke. The second part is the book of Acts. So flip ahead to Acts chapter 2, page 910. The very, so they go to Jerusalem as God instructs them. The Holy Spirit comes down to give them power as God said, as Jesus said he would. And the first sermon that's preached, what is Peter proclaiming? 
Look, starting at verse 22, Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attest to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. That's the very thing the guys on the road to Emmaus said about him, right? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He quotes Psalm 16. And listen to what he says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. You see how he's arguing? I heard Jesus explain this to me, and now I'm explaining it to you, that Psalm 16 clearly couldn't have been about anything else besides him. And that's why you should believe I'm a witness of these things. Got to see one other thing. This is the last place I'm going to have you turn. Turn to 2 Peter. Chapter 1. It's on page 1018. 1018. Second Peter chapter 1, page 1018. And verses 16 and 17, this same Peter talks about this experience he had where he saw the transfigured Jesus, which was like a little glimpse of the kingdom to come. He hears God's very voice say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I well pleased. Verse 18, We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, And then listen to verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture came from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is Peter saying there? He's saying, I had this incredible experience, but what I want to preach to you is not that experience that was so incredible. I want you to know the scriptures, the prophetic word, 
where we can see that the Holy Spirit inspired these men to write these things. What would it take for you to believe in the resurrection? I think all of us ache for something better, a better kingdom, a better way. I mean, our world, it's it's glorious, right? It's beautiful. There's so much good in this world. And yet it's tainted with all that's broken and contaminated and poisoned by it. And so that dichotomy leaves us longing, saying there has to be something better. We have that song arising in our own heart. God, it's a broken world. It's a hurting world. There's attacks everywhere. There's unjust men, unjust acts. And we're, we feel those Psalm 11. We feel Psalm 12, 13, 14, 17, 18, right? We long for this something greater. It's in our hearts. We all do different things with that. Some of us will say, well, all there is is the material world. And people who are longing for that kind of thing, it's just a crutch. Kind of carry you through. If we're going to try and have any, a world any better than this, we're just going to have to make ourselves better, try a little harder. We're all we have to deal with. Let's suck it up and do better. And some will say, no, there is this longing in my heart. I know there must be something better. The universe can't be just this. There has to be a a greater day coming, a, a heaven of some sorts, a better place. but it's, a, it's, it's naive. It's not rooted in the evidence. It's kind of this blind hope. We build our own little intricate theology to try and make it true, but it's ephemeral, fleeting. And to us this morning, to both groups, God offers hard evidence, proof that there actually is something better coming. Psalm 16 can arise out of the darkness. He wove together clues for over a thousand years. Mysterious but specific clues that could only make sense when Jesus came on the scene. And the people who are eyewitnesses of the resurrection, what they want to talk about is the scriptures and how Christ fulfilled them. And that's why we don't have to doubt. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that God's promises were true. He proved that David's hope was not unfounded. The brokenness and pain of this world and my own sinful heart can be forgiven.
can be restored, can be redeemed. What would it take for us to believe in the resurrection? Perhaps this 3,000-year-old song has helped us. Let's pray. Father, it might have felt like much of this was directed at someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus. But God, in this world, it is so easy for all of us to doubt, to question, to disbelieve. Many of us identify with that prayer that said, I believe, help my unbelief. So we pray that these truths that you gave us would strengthen our faith in the victory of Christ. Amen.